I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 52. We come to the end of Jeremiah this evening, a journey of judgment, a journey of sorrow, a journey of the deepest overtures as well of love, promises of restoration, of redemption, of mercy. Jeremiah's prophecy ends in a unique way in that it concludes with really a summary. A summary chapter is, is effectively what it is regarding the end of Zedekiah's reign and Jerusalem's existence in the land. Very reminiscent, if we might say it this way, of how the kings were summarized at the end of Kings and the end of Chronicles. Today, in, in summary, we will see all of these things, much of what we've studied in, in a manner of speaking, but we don't just see it as a summary of everything that has come up thus far. It's really significantly more than a summary. It's also a culmination. A culmination of the final days of Jerusalem leading to its captivity and a culmination of our thoughts on the, this particular revelation of the Word of God. You're there in Jeremiah 52, Verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this. Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For though, uh, through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, till he had cast them out from his presence that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. We find the historical record of Zedekiah here, the final days of Judah's kings. The Bible says he was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years. And this gives us cause to explore our trusty king's chart one final time. Recall Jehoahaz was first to reign after the untimely death of his godly father, Josiah, Josiah was a very godly man. Jehoahaz only reigned for three months, however, after which the Pharaoh of Egypt deposed him from the throne, took him to Egypt, and the Bible says that he died there, and he made his brother Jehoiakim king, according to 2 Kings 23. Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years, during which time Babylon's first deportation took place in 605 B.C., as we've spoken of, that is the deportation where Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael went into captivity. Second Kings 24 tells us that Jehoiakim was killed after a failed rebellion against the nation of Egypt. The people then made his son Jehoiachin, excuse me, the nation of Babylon, not Egypt. The people then made his son Jehoiachin king. Jehoiachin, however, only reigned for three months, seeing that Babylon had killed his father. Babylon didn't really want him to be in that position. And so he was deposed from being king. He was taken to Babylon and he was replaced with Zedekiah. Zedekiah began to reign in 597 BC and that was the time of the second deportation. That would be the deportation in which Ezekiel was taken to Babylon uh, and spent his time by the river Kibar. The legacy of Zedekiah, like that of his brothers, was a legacy of evil that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in light of this evil, the anger of the Lord fell upon Judah. And Babylon was, as we well know at this point, 
the tip of that spear. Babylon was the instrument of God's judgment against the nation. And the anger of the Lord persisted until the nation had been fully removed from the land of promise, cast out of God's presence as the case may be. And notice the emphasis verse 3 puts on the fact that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Recall how many chapters we spent reading about Jeremiah calling for the king Zedekiah to submit to Babylon because Babylon was the instrument of God's justice. Thus, to rebel against Babylon was to rebel against God himself. And Zedekiah refused to listen. He rebelled nonetheless. And not only did he suffer the the consequences of such, but so too did the nation. Continuing in verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month and the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem and pitched about it, against it and built forts against it round about. So the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. So it was in the tenth month of the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign when Nebuchadnezzar began the final siege of the city with his armies. Now take note, this is a significant amount of time, some 18 months before the city would fall, that the siege began. So this was not a short siege, and we're really going to see that reality come to light as we're walking through Lamentations. And we see some of the uh, elements of what will happen during the siege, some elements we don't read about in Jeremiah, elements we don't read about in the Kings of the Chronicles as it relates to the siege, elements that we're going to find in that lamentation of Lamentations, and uh, it's, it's going to, to be difficult to, to read and to consider. So the city was shut up, the city was barricaded, and Babylon waited them out until the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, as we said, about 18 months a siege which left the city demoralized, hungry, and broken. Verses 6 and 7. And in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the famine was sore in the city so that there was no bread for the people of the land. Then the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled and went forth out of the city by night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Now the Chaldeans were by the city round about. And they went by the way of the plain. So in the ninth day of the fourth month of the eleventh year, remember the siege began in the tenth day of the ninth month of the, of the, excuse me, of the tenth month of the ninth year. And in the ninth day of the fourth month of the eleventh year, the famine was so terrible in the city. There was no food. There was, there was no morale left. Everyone was starving. And so the city broke up. The king sought to flee the city with a band of his men, They tried to sneak out in the middle of the night. But the city was surrounded and did not work. Verses 8 through 11. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued after the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plain of Jericho and all his army was scattered from him. Then they took the king and carried him up unto the king of Babylon to Riblah in the land of Hamath where he gave judgment upon him. And the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes He slew also the princes of Judah in Riblah. Then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in chains and carried him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. As we've studied already, Zedekiah's final flight failed. He was overtaken in the plains of Jericho. He was already told by Jeremiah that he would not be killed by the king of Babylon, but that he would live his days in peace. This seemed to give Zedekiah a false sense of assurance 
from the prophet that nothing could, could, could go wrong with him. Well, that was certainly not true. So he was captured. His sons were captured. The princes were captured. And the last things that Achaia's eyes would see before his eyes were put out was the death of his son and the death of the princes of the nation. This is his sons, plural. And then his eyes were put out and he was taken in chains to Babylon. Quite an end. And an end that is indicative of his refusal to listen. His unwillingness to submit. Verses 12 through 16. Now in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, and burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and all the houses of the great men, burned he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard break down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive certain of the poor of the people and the residue of the people that remained in the city and those that fell away that fell to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude. But Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left certain of the poor of the land for vine dressers and for husbandmen. So about one month after the fall of the city, the Bible tells us the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes into the city and he burns it to the ground with the temple, with the king's house. This was the time, if you recall, when he sought out Jeremiah specifically and he gave Jeremiah some choices as to what to do. He offered to take Jeremiah back to Babylon and Jeremiah was treated with a, with a, a large measure of honor. Uh, perhaps because Jeremiah had spent the last several years telling Jerusalem Babylon's coming and submitting and calling them to submit. Uh, and knowing, of course, at this point, Daniel would have been an influential man in Babylon. And so most likely Daniel's influence combined with Jeremiah's prophecies uh, brought about a tremendous amount of favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar, um, called in this passage as he's regularly called in the book Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see that he burns everything he, he, most of the city is killed. But there is a remnant that is taken and they are sent to Babylon and then he leaves a small contingency of Jews, the poor in the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. We already talked about that as well. The fact that they were left in the land because if not, then the land would rot, right? You have to have someone maintain the land or else it'll overgrow, it'll become wild, animals will come in, they'll make it their home and then you have to re- uh, redominate the land if you're ever going to use it again. So if you keep certain people, people that have no will or capacity to, to revolt, but you keep them in the land that's best for the land, the land stays regulated. Verses 17 through 23. Also the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord and the bases and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord the Chaldeans break and carried all the brass of them to Babylon. The cauldrons also and the shovels and the snuffers and the bowls and the spoons and all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took they away. And the basins and the firepans and the bowls and the cauldrons and the candlesticks and the spoons and the cups, that which was of gold and gold and that which was of silver and silver took the captain of the guard away. The two pillars, one sea and twelve brazen bowls that were under the bases which King Solomon had made in the house of the Lord. And brass of all these vessels was without weight. And concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. And a fillet of 12 cubits did compass it. 
and the thickness thereof was four fingers. It was hollow. And a chapiter of brass was upon it, and the height of one chapiter was five cubits, with a network and pomegranates upon the chapters round about, all, the bra all of brass. The second pillar also and the pomegranates were like unto these. And there were ninety and six pomegranates on a on side, and all the pomegranates upon the network were a hundred round about. We're then given a record by Jeremiah of the things within the temple that were taken to Babylon. And it is a uniquely specific record, is it not? Recall that the temple in Jerusalem was lavish, almost completely covered in precious metals, gold, silver, brass. So they took the pillars of brass, they took the bases, the brazen laver, carrying all of that brass to Babylon as naturally we might expect them to do. They took all the cooking utensils. They took all the flatware. They took all the cups that were made of gold and of silver. Those are the cups that we find Belshazzar pulling out of the treasury in Daniel chapter 5 in order to use to uh, toast unto their gods and to themselves just before uh, the handwriting on the wall where God um, tells them that they would be overthrown. Jeremiah then goes into more about these pillars and about the basins and the brass which they took. He takes particular time to describe the engravings of the pomegranates on the pillars. You can perhaps hear in his writing a measure, a tone of nostalgia, a tone of perhaps that which we're going to glean from lamentations, a tone of sorrow, the idea of him thinking back toward the intricacies of the temple, the intricacies of the pillars, the beautiful engravings on them, uh, engravings which may very well have been carried all the way back to the, the, the temple or the tabernacle complex and uh, the, the gifts that the Lord had given to the engravers to engrave the beautiful works that they did for the manner of the temple and the tabernacle before it. It's as if Jeremiah were writing as he was looking at the smoldering pile of that which was the grandeur of the temple of God and reminiscing of its glory and its splendor and its beauty and its detail. It is unique to note here that the Ark of the Covenant is not mentioned. We talked about this a little bit uh, several chapters ago, the last time that we, we saw, uh, when we, we spoke over when the last time in the Scriptures we see the Ark, which was in the days of Josiah. And so we are not that many years beyond the last time that we've seen the Ark scripturally. And yet the ark is not mentioned, and this is where some of the conspiracy theorists get going on Jeremiah's grotto and those sorts of things. And we can't know one way or another per se what happened to the ark, but it is interesting. It is conspicuous in its absence, if we can put it that way, that the ark of the covenant is not mentioned as having been carried away to Babylon when things as small as cups and basins are mentioned. So take that for what it's worth. Verses 24 through 27. And the captain of the guard took Seraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. And he took also out of the city an eunuch, which had the charge of the men of war, and seven men of them that were near the king's person, which were found in the city, and the principal scribe of the host, who mustered the people of the land, and threescore men of the people of the land that were found in the midst of the city. So Nebuzaradan the captain of the guard took them and brought them to the king of Babylon, to Riblah. And the king of Babylon smote them and put them to death in Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive out of his own land. Jeremiah is quite detailed about the various elements of this removal. 
citing specific people here. Seraiah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, three keepers of the door, a eunuch that was over the man of war, seven advisors to the king, the principal scribe, 60 people found in the city. Jeremiah speaks toward these people in particular because they were gathered and they were taken specifically to stand before Nebuchadnezzar and they were slain before him. Whether or not he did it or one of his men did it, of course, we don't know. Why these particular people were chosen, we do not know. It is quite possible that they were the nearest representatives to the king's power and thus they were slain as well. Suffice it to say, however, after an 18-month siege, such a destruction and, and the tremendous amount of death was, was a terrible time for Judah, an unforgettably awful time. I, I, and, and this chapter, of course, Lamentations will help us with this, but this chapter helps us understand that. We talk about the captivity. We talk about those three promises that God made that he would send pestilence and famine in the sword. And we, we, we talk about um, exactly how the overthrow took place and that the overthrow took place. And then we moved quickly on to the remnant and Jeremiah dealing with the remnant and all of the issues of them trying to go to Egypt and that not working. And, and then we get into all of the prophecies about the nations and, and, and their doom. But that siege where Jeremiah was in that pit and they were trying to decide whether they were even going to feed him bread and all of those things that were going on, that was an 18-month-long process of slowly running out of food, slowly running, uh, having no imports, no, no exports, uh, not being able to open the gate, not being able to leave the city, uh, ending in starvation, and then the cities open up, and that's not the end of it. That's when the death happens. That's, that's when things get really bad. That's when everything gets burned to the ground. That's when everyone dies. At the end of that 18 months of misery... And thus we remember that the nation endured this specifically because they rebelled. No heart of repentance before the Lord. Verses 28 through 30. This is the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year, 3,000 Jews and three and 20. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem, 830 and two persons. In the three and twentieth year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews 740 and five persons. All the persons were 4,600. Jeremiah records three dates here. Now, we have three dates and we have three deportations, so we might think that they correspond, but they don't quite correspond. We have the seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar, the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, and the twenty-third year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, back in verse 12, we learned that Nebuchadnezzar burned the city in the 19th year, which was a little bit of time after the fall of Jerusalem. So it was in Nebuchadnezzar's 19th year, according to verse 12, that he burned the city. And we have the 7th, the 18th, and the 23rd mentioned here. So we know that this second date, the 18th year, and I apologize for that rolling over. Didn't do that on my screen earlier. Uh, we... We, uh, we know that this second date, the 18th year, is the time surrounding the deportation in 586 B.C. And if we subtract from Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year to his 7th year, we find the first number to be a record of the deportation 11 years earlier in 597 B.C. So we have a 597 deportation, that's the 7th year. 
We have the 586 deportation, that's the 18th year. We know that the 19th year was when Nebuchadnezzar burned the city. And then we have here a record of the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, which would be in 581 B.C. Now, the sum total of the people taken in these deportations is given as 4,600 people, 3,023 in 597 B.C., 832 in 586 B.C., and in 581 B.C., some years later, 745 more people. Now, why, we ask, does Jeremiah skip the deportation of 605 B.C.? I believe the answer is fairly straightforward. While the first deportation was in 605 B.C., Babylon exerted no pressure or sway in the kingdom at that time. The kingdom was effectively still in contest. It It was more or less under the rule of Egypt still in 605 B.C. They were still under the king that Egypt had put in place at that time. He was still autonomous over the kingdom of Judah. But Zedekiah was the king who Nebuchadnezzar himself had put in place. It was in the days of Zedekiah that Judah's fate was sealed. So as Jeremiah gives the perspective here, he's giving the perspective that began really with the beginning of Zedekiah's reign in 597 B.C. and through those final 11 years and then beyond that into this last deportation in the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar in 581 B.C. So it should perhaps not surprise us that Jeremiah's account deals with the days that are following the reign of Judah's final king and the reign of Judah's final king. That's how the chapter began, right? The chapter began with Zedekiah, accounting for Zedekiah's last days, not so much accounting for this this first deportation, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the fourth year of Jehoiakim. One final thing we should mention here before we move on. And I really want you to gain a perspective on this. We think of the deportation. We think of however many thousands of people were in Jerusalem, however many uh, tens of thousands of people were in Judah, the nation of Judah. We know that they uh, had good numbers of people in in that nation. And we think about the deportation and we we perhaps picture in our mind's eye the idea of, of, of all these people in Jerusalem and Judah being moved over to Babylon. But I want you to think about these numbers with me. We reside here in a very small city, Buffalo, a very small city whose population is about 15,000 people by last census. Delano's population by last census is about 5,500 people. Rockford's population by last census is about 4,400 people. The Bible says that 4,600 people were taken in those final three deportations. And in the first deportation, we know they only took the princes and the nobles. How many of those? We, could we say a couple hundred? That would probably be overestimating the number of princes and nobles in the city. What that tells us is that only about 5,000 Jews, only about as many people as reside in Delano or in Rockford, only about 5,000 people made it out of this whole ordeal alive. That gives us a renewed perspective on the kind of bloodshed, on the, kind of, uh, on the amount of death that happened here. This was judgment, and it was harsh judgment by the Lord. 
When God says, I will give you famine and pestilence and the sword as your reward. And then everything in our minds is about deportations, right? Well, why did God say he's going to give them famine and pestilence and sword so often if they're all ending up in Babylon? They did not all end up in Babylon. Very few, very few, relatively speaking, ended up in Babylon. Significantly more were killed by famine or by pestilence or by the sword. God promised that if the people avoided one, the other would overcome them. And indeed, that is what we see. At the end of this whole ordeal, only some 5,000 Jews presumably remained on earth. To give you some perspective on that statistic, in 1933, there were 3 million Jews in Poland. By 1950, after the Holocaust, there were only 45,000. In 1933, there were 565,000 Jews in Germany. By 1950, after the Holocaust, there were only 37,000. Similar numbers exist for Romania and Czechoslovakia and Austria. But by 580 BC, by the year after that final deportation, Jeremiah's census places only 5,000 or so Jews in existence as the natural consequence of their terrible rebellion against the Lord. The chapter ends in 31 through 34 and the Bible tells us this. It came to pass in the 7th and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, in the 5 and 20th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him forth out of prison, and spake kindly to him, unto him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments, and he did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet, there was a continual diet given him of the king of Babylon every day, a portion until the day of his death, all the days of his life. So our final reflection here is actually of Jehoiachin. Remember, Jehoiachin was the son of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim having been killed in the rebellion against Babylon. Jehoiachin being made king for three months before Nebuchadnezzar decided that he should not be king and he was deposed and Zedekiah was put in his place and he was taken to Babylon. And he was left in prison there and he was left in prison there until Nebuchadnezzar died. And after Nebuchadnezzar died, king named Evil Merodach took over and lifted his head out of prison and had mercy on him. We find that in the 37th year of his captivity, this would be the captivity that began in 597 B.C. in the second deportation. So we go down to about 560 B.C., in the twelfth month and the twenty-fifth day of the month, Jehoiachin was released after spending about thirty-seven years in prison. And the rest of the days of his life were the days lived in peace. So ends the chapter. So ends the book of Jeremiah. I love how the book of Jeremiah ends. Because though the prophet never got to see the final restoration, as Daniel would get to see 
the coming back out of Babylon. His final reflections are reflections of a future. His final reflections are reflections that remind the people reading that things haven't ended, that they will continue, that there is a remnant, as God promised, that even Jehoiachin got to live out his days in peace, that God's favor was slowly but surely turning back toward his people, all in anticipation of what Jeremiah has already promised, that at the end of those 70 years, God would remember his people and he would bring them back from captivity. And in a book filled with judgment, we must not forget that it is all judgment in faithfulness, pointing God's people back to him for repentance, unto restoration, for redemption, and for the absolute hope that they can have in God's love. For our application today, I'd like to take you to a psalm. And that psalm is Psalm 124. As I was studying this chapter, Psalm 124 just kept coming to mind. It was a psalm that was very special to me, particularly in years of my, in in some of my college years. And when there are circumstances such as we see throughout Jeremiah, I am often called back to the reminder of Psalm 124. And the Bible says this, a song of degrees of David. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, now may Israel say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick when their wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, now may Israel say. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, now may Legacy Baptist Church say. If it had not been for the Lord who was on the side, who was on our side, now may my family say. If it had not been for the Lord who was on my side, now may I say. It is the Lord who is gracious and long-suffering abundant in goodness and truth. It is the Lord who keeps mercy for thousands. It is the Lord who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. It is the Lord who is both just and the justifier of those who will put their trust in him. It is the Lord who delivers us from the snare of the fowler. It is the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth in which we find our help. Think upon yourself this evening where you find yourself, upon your circumstances, upon your life as it is right now. Have you ever just thought where you would be without God? Have you ever considered perhaps a path that you were on at some point 
and you were walking down that path and there was a moment where you had a choice to make where God made a clear path of this way or that way, it's me or it's not, and you submitted yourself to the Lord and you see the results of that and now you wonder what... You, you, you wonder in horror at what life might have been like if only you had gone the other way. If only it had not been for the Lord whose patient outreach in your life had been so continual and consistent. Thank God He gives us far more opportunity. Thank God He's far more patient with us than we are with others. <laughs> right? I tell the people at the jail quite often, as, as I'm talking about the nature of sin, I'd say, if I were God, I'd just crinkle us up and throw us in the trash can. But he hasn't done that because he loves us. If it had not been for the Lord, where would you be? If not for the Lord, where would you find yourself today? Apart from God's mercy, let us never forget just how different things were before God. Some of our young people don't really you may never even be able to process that. In some ways, myself included in that, those of us who are saved at a young age, we cannot process that to the fullest degree. And yet, as we look out at the lives of the millions and the billions in this world who don't have Him, it should not well you up with judgmentalism, with senses of superiority. Your heart should not well up with pride when you see where you are in comparison to where the world is. Your heart should be deeply humbled because that wasn't you. It wasn't you. Not have we gotten but what we've received. If it were not for the Lord, you'd be there too. If it were not for the Lord... That would be your story. That would be your path as well. And when we remember this, when we remember what the Lord has done for us, let us not just remember, but let us love Him for it. Let us love Him with all of our hearts for what we could have been but aren't for what we are, that we have no business being, for what He has produced in us that is exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think, for what He has given us that is little more than, than the extension of His favor and His goodness unto us, for the decisions that could have been made but weren't, for the decisions that were made that didn't have to be, for the Lord's goodness, on our behalf. Let us love him as he loves us. Is that not what 1 John 4.19 tells us? We love him because he first loved us. Do you realize how much God loves you? It's evident every day. It's easy to lose sight of that in a world that's so lost in sin and in the frustration even of our own sinfulness, Right? We talk about all the things that the Lord may have redeemed us from and thank God for that. But, but we, we, anyone who's rightly related to God understands the wretchedness of his own flesh. 
and you think about that and you think about your failures, failures and you think about whatever it might be, those frustrations, those cares of this world, those things, but every day it is so evident just how much God loves you, is it not? It's evident in God's blessings. It's evident in God's chastening. It's evident in the trials he brings. It's evident in the strength he gives you to overcome them. It's evident in his patience. It's evident in his provision. It's evident when you make a wrong choice and God gives you beauty for ashes. It's evident when you exercise that faith, perhaps just the grain of a mustard seed faith. And somehow, when we do the very thing that God has every right to expect from us by, by, by creation and by redemption, somehow, not only does God give us the means by which to see it and to obey it. But when we step out in that little mustard seed amount of faith, he blesses us for it. He rewards us for doing what we ought to do anyway. And we only do because of his power in us. Literally, he does it. And all we do is submit to it. And then when we do, when we submit and he does the work in us that he desires to work in us, he blesses us. By the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul would write. And this grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. It's God that gave me the grace, and because he's given me the grace, I want to labor with all of my heart, but I can't even do that without his grace. So it's God from beginning to end. And at the end of all that, we get to hear the words, well done. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Wow. Without it, we would be in the grip of sin, good only to be chewed up and spat out by the world that is around us. Surely without the Lord, we would have been swallowed up quick. Surely without the Lord, the waters of life would have overwhelmed us and the stream would have gone over our soul. But God has not given us as a prey to their teeth because the Lord is on our side. What can this love do but compel us unto the heights of obedience, unto the heights of praise? Judah defied the living God, and they saw the consequences, yet God left a remnant. But oh, what was Judah like when they were on God's side? What was Judah like when they were submissive? Oh, how we have seen the days of the, the beauty of Jerusalem in the Word of God. And when we align with God, when we are on God's side, He's there to give us exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. He's there with fullness of joy. He is there with delight for our souls. Because as Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says, the thoughts of the Lord toward us are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give unto us an expected end. Because as Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, God has loved us with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, he has drawn us to himself. Jeremiah is a book that leaves things in a bad state. But with that kernel of hope, that seed of hope that Jeremiah planted into the ground 
watered by the own promises of God and the prophetic words of his book that Jeremiah knew beyond knowledge would grow and would sprout into the redemption that he saw and that the prophets saw on the horizon. Somewhat, slightly, a shadow of that redemption seen 70 years later in the days when Cyrus would allow them to come back. That redemption seen in the person of Jesus Christ, that redemption realized in the fullness when Christ comes again. But it's here. That everlasting love, those thoughts of peace, that picture of a God who keeps reaching, a people who keep rejecting, but there's coming a day where God's love will win out. Judah will know one day what it is that God spoke to them about in Jeremiah 29.11, what God spoke to them about in Jeremiah 31.3. But you and I, this gets to be our today. Judah will one day look upon him whom they have pierced and will mourn for him and will receive him and will enter into his kingdom. As Paul says in Romans 11, so all Israel shall be saved as it relates to that final generation of the nation of Israel who will see him come in the clouds as he went. But in this time, we have been given spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We have been given the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the, promise, of the purchased possession. We have Christ in us, our hope of glory. Today, we can say boldly with the psalmist, with David in Psalm 124, if it, had been, if it had not been for the Lord, I'd be there. But he is on my side. Are you on his this evening? I want to leave you with that. I want to leave you not with thoughts of war and of death and of famine and of pestilence and of the sword, but I want to leave you with a reminder of God's great love and a reminder of what we have because of God's great love, of what we have become beneficiaries of because God extended his love to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Just how important that is and just what that should do in our hearts as it relates to serving him. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.